The following intel is considered high profile by Cobra Command. Welcome to Mile High File Cards. Here at uh, Fan Expo 2022 uh, with Ariel Diaz. A freelance artist slash coffee addict, am I right? Oh yeah. I'm not sure which one is more intriguing, but for the deep cuts, let's go. What's your favorite cup of coffee? Uh, I like it sweet. I like my caramel, especially as a macchiato, things like that. Not too much into Americano. <laughs> Cheers. I dig it. By the way, Ariel's also a G.I. Joe cover artist, if I'm not mistaken, a dangerous piece of art of Baroness, am I right? I love Baroness. Word. It says on your uh, bio that you like to flex a lot of different styles. If G.I. Joe comes to you as a brand, what, what style or theme comes to mind? What do you have to get right? I try to give uh, the grittiness of it as far as, you know, like the style goes for making it. You gotta love the badass characters that comes out in the, in the series. And so just by drawing like snake eyes and then Baroness, things like that, they're just all dark and then cool like. So it's always been a, a favorite of mine as a kid uh, growing up with G.I. Joe and things like that. Last G.I. Joe question. Sure. Is it a brand that resonates to you as an artist? You, you like to dabble in fantasy, sci-fi? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I like uh, trying out all different kinds of mediums as far as, like like you said, fantasy, sci-fi, even horror as well. So uh, I like to try different things. Where can people find your artwork online? You can find my art on divineimmortality.net or you can, you can always Google my name, Ariel Diaz. Here at Fan Expo 2022, which is hard to believe, and I'm with Heather Antos, an editor. Uh, is there any other titles I should add to that? Editor uh, and, and sometimes doodler. Oh, nice. <laughs> A very young editor, in fact. How young did you become an editor? Uh, I began working professionally in comics when I was 24. That is young. Pretty young. Um, which must mean you have the pulse of the room. Uh, what would you attribute that to? Like social networking or...? I think just tenacity. Um, I'm very much the type of person that if I want something, I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. And when I, you know, discovered the role of the comic book editor, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. I wanted to learn how to do it and be the best and figure out how to, how to make comics. Being an editor, I'm sure you've seen the dark side of fandom, but maybe it's this mile high air. What do you see in the uh, come up that would give you hope for next generation of fandom? What I love so much about fandom is it's all about how passion, right? It's all about how much we love these stories and love these characters, and that's what brings us together. And, you know, that's never changed. Um, that's always going to be the case. And so, you know, it's all about finding your people. And that's that's what I love. And, and you know, following the, the stories of hope that we have, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, it's all about finding hope and finding community and finding your people. And so long as we continue on that path, there's got to be a, a bright future, right? Heather Antos, editor slash boss here in Denver.
Dude, what's with all these effing birds? <laughs> well, I had been writing a bunch of other stuff on social media that was funny, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to take all the things I had learned from successes and failures and like put them into one big bucket. And I had this sort of framework for it, and I decided to test it out with something, like with a really simple thing. And I just like hit on birds almost randomly as the subject. Here with Aaron Reynolds and effing birds. Yeah. All right, you're trying to tell me the effing birds got north of 300k following on Twitter? How does that happen? Yeah, that's, well, I had, I slowly have, what's the right way to say it? I, I, build up a project and then when I work on the next project I use the previous project to give it a little boost you know so the thing that I had done before it had topped out at about 150,000 followers the thing that I had done before that had topped out at about 50,000 followers you know so each of those I I try to take their those audiences that I've built to give myself my first you know few steps with the new project and so it's been a really nice growth strategy but it also didn't hurt the Britney Spears posted to Instagram that she thinks I'm brilliant. That nice. was that was a great nice. day. Yeah. And hey, we'll we'll throw in that hashtag free Britney Spears. Yeah, exactly. Would you attribute like that to you? Would it be a slow grind or your social savviness or how does that kind of kind of a little bit of everything? Yeah, um, it's definitely. I wouldn't call it a grind, but I would say consistency is super important. Uh, I schedule everything. I, I schedule across social media, and I make sure that I have consistent content happening at peak times. And so every few months I go back and do like some analytics for the audience to see when they're most active, right? And start moving posts to when the audience is there. And that's like, that's ultra important. But I've also done that on a really like granular scale. With one of my projects, I found out that Will Wheaton was following it. And he had four million Twitter followers. And so the key was like, when is Will Wheaton active? And what content does he like best? And I'm just gonna make sure that there are Will Wheaton themed posts in there for him. And it's not like, I felt a little guilty because it was like, I'm, it's kind of like I'm cyber stalking Will Wheaton. But at the same time, I was giving him the content that he wanted at the time that he was available. And then he would retweet them. You know, and so it was a great way to build audience. But the thing is, like, on any scale, there's somebody in your audience who's, like, more popular than you, you know? And so you just got to find them and sort of, like, give them what they're looking for from you, and it just helps. Well, may this pod be blessed by your social metrics. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. A couple of effing bird questions, obviously. Yeah. Your favorite bird from pop culture. Oh, favorite bird from pop culture. That's hard because there are a lot of good birds. I like Woodstock a lot from Peanuts. Nice. But also, I got the chance to hang out with Big Bird on the red carpet at the Webby Awards. That was like a life-changing moment. Like someone else I was there with, uh, Michelle, who writes the Effin' Birds newsletter. We were there for Effin' Birds at the Webby Awards. And Big Bird walked the red carpet after us. But Big Bird had lost his handler. So he sort of ran into us on the red carpet because he couldn't really see where he was going. And there was this like tearful moment where Michelle hugged Big Bird. And it was like, it was great. I love Big Bird. Right? Yeah. It's like to get a hug from Big Bird is something else. Since this is technically a G.I. Joe podcast, of course we would have accepted freedom. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. Well. Yeah. What's the, well, no, what's, uh, what's Shipwreck's parrot? Oh, good one. Polly. Polly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, I was always losing and then finding that, that little piece. Uh, being from Canada, but you're still a Joe fan, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Buffalo 29. 
Thanks very much for G.I. Joe every day after school. Hey, we're calling out Will Wheaton and Buffalo 29. Right? There you go. Uh, one more bird bonus question so yeah. you can leave like a boss. Um, <laughs> do you know the Colorado State bird? I do not know the Colorado State bird. I'm wearing a Rockies jersey, but it's local pandering. That's what's happening right bird, now. Yeah. Bird. Well, of course, it's the Lark Bunting. Oh, I can picture that bird in my head, so there that's a, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that might be all my bird questions. Thanks. Aaron Reynolds here at Fan Expo 2022. Thank you, my man. Hey, my pleasure. Here at Fan Expo 2022 with somebody who's been in the acting game for quite some time. Three million years. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Well, that is appropriate because you were on the show Denver the Dinosaur. I was, yes. Which opens up a couple easy questions. Uh, how is Denver treating you? <laughs> Denver as a dinosaur was fun. Denver as a, a fan con is exquisite. Uh, the people are fabulous. The fans are awesome. The, the venue itself is gorgeous. I keep asking them what's first and last because I want to move in. Yeah. Mm, so Denver, nice. the town, is pretty fabulous. Yeah. Good man. Loving it here. Welcome. You also have played a couple notable villains along the way. Including, actually, in Denver, The Last Dinosaur. I was, Morty Fizback was kind of based on, on Rodney Dangerfield, you know? Hey, how about that? Yeah, we did a great time, you know? And they gave me money for it. Ooh. And a couple other characters in that show as well. But yeah. Well, let's jump to the future. You played the MCP on the Tron video game, am I right? That's so obscure. Yes, indeed. Indeed we did. Yeah, which is pretty much doing a British actor that everybody knew, but much less expensive than the British actor that everybody knew. Well, Tron is such an interesting franchise to me. Did it appeal to you? Does it appeal to you? The thing that's interesting about about how those things happen. Timing is everything. If somebody was once talking about Star Wars uh, was in development, at the same time Disney was doing a space movie, and the Disney space movie would, had it been released before Star Wars, would have been earth-shakingly new and a little charming in the way Disney can be charming, but because of how amazing Star Wars was and that being released later, people thought it was a little kitschy. So sometimes every, a lot of things are one thing in relationship to another. And Tron was at a time where the, the battle that went on creatively was, do the special effects count more than the story? And the special effects won out to some degree in the, in the original Tron. So it was a little thin on the story. There was more story, at least according to what people in the business that I knew talked to me about when I did the job. There was more to the story that they felt that they needed to sacrifice because a lot of that animation was new. Digital animation was in its infancy. And so they wanted to really showcase how great that was. But I think they may have went, sometimes you just don't know when you have a lot of people trying to figure it out. And so I think most of the people who were fans of the genre liked it, but felt that the story was a little bit lack. Could have been, you know, look, look at Star Wars, how complicated the stories are that for Marvel Comics in comparison. So I think it was just one of those kinds of things. I would love to see a, a rebuilt, re-edited version of the original Tron, putting some of the story back to give it some of the angst that characters can give a story in addition to animation, because I think it would enhance it, and then people would find it more interesting than they did at the time. You heard, Disney? <laughs> thank you, thank you for that context program. And of course, since this is a GI Joe podcast, I have to ask about a villain that. And let me give this proper context. Maybe one of the most notorious in our time. I mean, you can't find two people that agree on anything these days. Yeah. Did Mo Dr. Mindbender win? That's a good. The only reason Dr. Mindbender didn't, but the actor who does it did. Nice. 
Bill, you know, as let's face it, in the entertainment pantheon, occasionally, if maybe in a Marvel pro project especially, the villain goes on and on and on and on. But usually, the idea of the villain is is that good wins out over evil. In the villainous uh, pantheon, the villain stays a villain and is defeated, or if he changes for the sake of the story, he becomes a truly good person in relationships. So, Mindbender, being who he is, also you also have to look. Mindbender is kind of a takeoff of Jekyll and Hyde. Because he starts with his own, his own thing that's trying to help the world, and it turns him evil. So there's also kind of a sympathetic side for Mindbender. And the third thing that makes Mindbender work for me is every time you audition for a project, you need to come up with like two or three different versions of the character, to, partly to let the people you're auditioning for know that you're capable of variety, but also if they don't like one thing, you've given them two or three choices. So that character is loosely based on Arnold Schwarzenegger, on a deep evil Schwarzenegger-like character. So I basically put out three things that I had thought had possible value. They liked that, and then we went with it. So Mindbender's fun for me now because I can play them both evil and comedic at the same time, and it works. So. Well, that explains why you had a shirt on. <laughs> I actually had a vendor say, if you'd shave your head, work out, and come in, in just tight leotards, I'd, put, I'd book you at all my cons, and I explained... Yeah, if I went home, my wife would say, you don't get into this house until you grow your hair back and put some clothes on. Baby. Don't forget those purple pants. Yeah. Um, tight. Ooh, tight. Oh. I've talked to many of the, not only the actors, but the folks around uh, the Sumbo series. Yeah. Now, G.I. Joe was, I want to say, a unique property in the sense that it's transcended. It's now 40 years deep for yeah. a real American hero. Yeah. The tagline, knowing is half the battle. What did you learn from the people around you? What did you take from that experience? Well, I, I, I learned a bunch of things. I, I learned that that when you're in the middle of a project, it's virtually impossible as an actor to know whether you're going to succeed or not, so you just do your best work. I learned that what the audience loves, the audience loves despite what you think uh, about the project. It was a very large project with a huge cast. It was delicious to do because it took Wally a long time to get the chemistry right while we were doing the session, so you spent several hours hanging out waiting for your scene, which meant you sat with some of the most fascinating performers in the world, which we don't usually get in animation. We're like running from place to place. Hanna-Barbera would do a show in half an hour. Wally took his time to get it right. So you learn to trust the guy who's in charge and knows it. I'll tell you about Wally Burke. We did a, a Transformers and G.I. Joe party for Wally about five years ago in Van Nuys. At the end of the evening, he said, just for fun, we're all going to get together and sing the Transformers heavy metal theme song. Oh, wow. Okay, we did it. He said, not good enough. We did it a second time. Finally said, okay, it's fine. Wally made a sing. It's at a party. We didn't have to do a final take. We had to do it three times before Wally would sign off on it. That's because that's the kind of care that was put into it, how the show worked. And today, the, the whole thing that validates all of that stuff that the creative team did when they put this whole thing together is that the fans are here 40 years later, that all of the subsequent versions of the show have failed to excite the audience as much as the original version of the show. And so, and the toy company wisely has hung in as well. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a continuing thing that nobody expected, but is delicious to have. Uh, I think somebody's trying to upstage Mindbender. We both know that's a mistake. I'm going over there when we finish, and I'm going to change everybody's eye color. <laughs> Brian Cummings here in the Mile High City. Thank you, sir. Here at Fan Expo 2022, hard to believe. 
here with Renee Witterstatter. Witterstatter? Witterstatter. That was very close. Thank you very much. <laughs> and some may know, but if you don't, uh, you started this journey how long ago? Well, I'm not going to date myself. Fair enough. <laughs> Never ask a lady her age. Mm. But no, I've been in the industry for a while. Uh, I started out as, at DC Comics as an assistant editor. And before that, I was actually filling in blacks and inking some uh, for some of my friends, but it was uncredited. My first official job in comics was being a co-chair of the Dallas Fantasy Fair uh, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, that's really how I met a lot of creative people that worked in the industry. My degree was in uh, journalism and English, and it just... Uh, doors opened and I was able to use my degree working in comic books and it was a very exciting. That's what caught my attention. You being a journalist, you were always pursuing a story. Is that accurate? Yes, I, I always loved, well, even when I was writing for newspapers, my favorite types of articles to write would be about people and to find out what made them unique and, and what it was that they enjoyed in life. So I found that, you know, telling those complete stories as a journalist, I was able to use those same sensibilities when working with writers on comic books because every story, regardless of what it is, has to have a middle, a beginning, and an end, and you have to, you know, build that story arc. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed taking those sensibilities to comic books as well. Later on, I segued into movies, and I found that my experience as a comic book editor also helped me in my movie career. So as an editor, you've been around good company, good artists along the way. Uh, one, of them, one of them that have found me, Michael Golden, a uh, big fan of G.I. Joe, your book number two. Sure. A book that's resonated in the fandom even now. As things evolve, I hear the word storyteller more and more. Why is that important to you? I know you've been to several continents to teach people how to do storytelling. True. Why, why is that important to you, telling a story? Well, because that's what our medium is all about. You know, we're here to tell stories. You know, if we're not telling stories, why are we doing it? Really, a comic book is like a movie on paper, and for that to happen, you have to have the story. You mentioned Michael Golden. He is one of the best storytellers in the business, I think. You know, he understands the craft. And I don't, I'm not sure everybody does, but if you look at Michael's work, he most certainly does. And I think what a lot of people lose track of is that every discipline you have in comic books, the penciler, the inker, the writer, the colorist, the editor, our whole job is to tell that story. And, you know, you'll see some comic books where the coloring is just way too muddy. That is an example of the coloring not contributing to the storytelling. So all of those disciplines work together to tell the story that we're trying to tell. And it's, it's not only that it's important to me, I mean, I think it should be important to anyone that is creating sequential art, because otherwise, what are you doing? You're here to tell a story. Being the editor, being close to so many creatives, I know you've uh, crossed paths with Larry Homo along the way. Sure. Just as a kind of a transcendent talent, maybe even a real American hero, what would you say about Larry Hama in the context of a creative? Well, I think Larry is amazing. Not only is he super talented himself, but he was also a mentor to a lot of people in the industry. He, he really took the time to teach people how to put together comic books, what was expected of them. He gave plenty of people opportunities uh, to do that, and I mean, a lot of those works are now very iconic works. 
Uh, I think he has a great storytelling sensibility, and of course he is an artist himself. So yeah, and he's also a very nice guy. You know, I, I have only good things to say about Larry. He's been one of these people during the course of my career that I'm always happy to see. You know, he always brings a smile to my face whenever I see Larry. Respect. Yeah. Uh, final question, why is it important for you to tell your own story in the grander scheme? Oh, someday I'll write a book and maybe tell my whole story. I don't know, maybe. But you know, as, as a woman working in the industry, I feel like I have been given nothing but opportunities. And I've been mentored by some very amazing people like Craig Anderson and Jim Salakrup. And I learned a great deal from Mike Carlin over when, over when I was at DC. I've been able to work with Jackie Chan on movies. I've been able to work with Anthony Hopkins. I've been able to work with some truly amazing people. And you hear a lot of negative stories all the time about bad experiences people have had. So I like to talk about my good experiences. You know, I've maybe had one or two bad experiences in my whole career. And, you know, I've persevered and overcome when those things have happened. But, you know, there's so much positive in our industry. And I feel the positive far outweighs the bad. So I like to it be encouraging to people of every gender, people of every faith, people of every desire of whatever kind of comic book they want to create. I want to be encouraging to them and tell them that anything is possible. Because I'm a little girl that grew up in Texas, in the middle of nowhere. And somehow these things happened for me. And it's a matter of a door opening and you deciding if you're going to go through that door. So don't limit yourself, whoever you are, wherever you're from. When those opportunities come, don't tell yourself you can't do it. Tell yourself, how am I going to do it? And you'll find a way.